All right, open up your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And this is how we're going to do it this morning. We're not going to do this every time through the book of Hebrews, but this morning again gives us another good opportunity. I want us to stand together and I'll read the text and then we'll go back and take a look at it piece by piece. But I'd like you to stand just out of reverence to God's word as we begin here. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Uh, this morning we're going to take a look at the first nine verses of the chapter. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witnesses, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, who for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. For everyone. Father, we pray that you would open up the eyes of our understanding to receive your word. We're thankful that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. We're grateful for the presence of your Holy Spirit among us. But now, Lord, we trust you to speak as a faithful shepherd to your sheep. Do it in and through and around and over the words that I say to the hearts of those who are your people. And those who are not yet your people, we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hebrews chapter 2, it'll come as no surprise to you, follows after Hebrews chapter 1. And we saw the last couple weeks, taking a look at Hebrews chapter 1, how powerfully and how brilliantly it described the supremacy of Jesus. Now, most pointedly in Hebrews chapter 1, he wanted to demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus over angelic beings. He considered these great and glorious and radiant beings that we would call angels and how he proved both from the scriptures and just both from analysis that Jesus is exalted above the angels. Whereas if an angel were to appear to us right now and just appear on this platform, we would be strongly tempted to worship that angel or at least to listen to that angel and give that angel all of our attention. If that's true of an angelic being, how much more true is it of Jesus? Because Jesus is supreme over the angels. He's high. He's exalted. He himself is God. Well, that's very strongly and eloquently the theme that the writer to the Hebrews brought us in chapter one. Now, in the beginning of chapter two, he's not going to let that truth about Jesus just be a theological truth that you put up on a shelf and admire from afar. 
There's all kinds of things like that in our homes, aren't there? There's some decoration, some statues, some cup. You'd never use it for any practical thing. It's just there to look nice upon the shelf. I'm not saying that's bad. It can be a nice decoration for the home. But you understand the difference between something that you might actually use and something you might just look at and admire. This truth about the supremacy of Jesus is not something that we just look at and admire. It's supposed to affect our lives. How? Look at it right here in verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. You notice that great word, therefore? Therefore means it's in reference to what's gone before. And what's gone before has been a powerful and really a brilliant explanation of who Jesus is and how he's superior to the angels. And because of all that Jesus is, as explained in Hebrews chapter 1, look at there at verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed. Because Jesus is who he said he was. You can't just ignore him. You can't just write him off. You can't just lump him in as being another great spiritual leader or teacher who has walked the earth through the pages of history. No, because Jesus is who he says he is, because he's who the Bible declares him to be, you better listen to him. You must give, look at how it's phrased there in verse 1, the more earnest heed. When I think of that picture of the more earnest heed, I think of a dog listening for his master. You know, sort of stretched out every sort of fiber of the dog's being is extended out, waiting to hear something from his master. That's how we should be to Jesus. We should be thinking of him and saying, Jesus, what you say I'm going to do. I'm not just going to think about you as someone to be admired. I'm going to let you tell me what to do. This is so important. Now, this is what I want you to understand. It's important for us to think that this message right here about giving the more earnest heed was directed to those who are not yet believers, as this was an evangelistic appeal. And really, it is a tremendous evangelistic appeal. If you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, I speak to you this morning and say, you better listen to Jesus. Don't write him off. Come to know who Jesus is and pay attention to him and give him your life, your obedience, your faithfulness. This is who Jesus is. And because he's supreme over all, he deserves that from you. I'm very happy to deliver that message to those who do not yet believe. But can we be honest about this? This is a message given to already those who believe. God's saying it to you who already calls yourself a follower of Jesus, who already considers yourself to be a Christian. You better listen to what Jesus says and give it a more earnest heed. Why? Look at it there in verse 1. Lest we drift away. If we do not give the more earnest heed, we're in danger of drifting away. And the writer of the Hebrews here had in mind just what would happen to a boat. There's a boat. It's just sitting on the ocean. And you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to drift. Unless it's anchored securely. It's going to just drift away. It's going to drift because the wind is going to blow upon it. It's going to drift because there's a current in the water. It's going to drift just because it seems that that's what boats do. It's not entirely on a stable basis. It's going to drift. And this is what he's warning us against. He's saying your life will drift away from faithfulness to Jesus Christ unless you give a more earnest heed to who he is, especially his supremacy. Does this resonate with anybody here? Do you think about it in your own life? 
Maybe you look back and you see that there was a time in your life when you were drifting. Oh, you believed in Jesus. Oh, oh, if somebody asked you some theological questions, you could check the right boxes. But if the truth be told, you were drifting. You knew about Jesus. You honored him, but you weren't anchored to him. And because of that, there was just this drift in your life. Jesus Christ wasn't exalted as supreme in your life. And therefore, you were without an anchor. This is a tremendous danger. And I want you to think about that picture of just drifting. What do you have to do to drift? Nothing. Just sit there in the water and you'll drift. I mean, surfers know this, don't you? You're there in the lineup. And what do you got to do to get pushed out of the place where the waves are breaking and the peak is where you want to catch? Well, you got to you just sit there and you'll drift out of it. You got to keep paddling back to the place where you want to get that nice slot in the lineup where you can take off on the good wave. That's just how it is. It's there on the water. You're just going to drift if you do nothing. I want you to think about what Paul said to the Philippian jailer when the Philippian jailer asked that great question. It's in Acts chapter 16. He said, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul tell him? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He told him to believe. That's what you have to do to be saved. Let me flip that question around. What do you have to do to be lost? Let's say the Philippian jailer asked a question. What must I do to be lost? I'll tell you the answer to that question. Nothing. Just don't do anything. You you can even have it in your head out there on a theoretical basis that Jesus is supreme. But don't do anything. Don't put your trust in him. Don't exalt him as Lord of your life. Don't worship him. Don't pray to him. You do all that. And that is quite enough to be lost. You don't have to do anything. And the wind of the culture, the current of your own sinful nature, the environment that the devil so lovingly or hatefully, I should say, it's lovingly in his eyes, it's hatefully in our eyes, prepares to lead us to destruction. It'll have its effect on you and you'll drift away. What a powerful picture this is. Well, that's the lesson. Now he's going to imply it even more. Look at it here, starting at verse two, where he says, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Notice here in verse two. He talks about the word spoken by angels. That's a reference to the law of Moses, because both by Jewish tradition and a few scriptural indications, angels had some role. We don't know exactly what it was, but angels had some role in the delivery of the law to the people of Israel. So that was the word spoken through angels. Now, friends, you may know this from your own understanding of the Bible. Was it a serious thing to break the law of Moses? Yes. And the law of Moses came by the hand of angels. Well, if it was a serious thing to disregard a law that came by angels, how much more serious it is to disregard something that came from someone greater than any angel, Jesus himself. You get the picture. You see, the Mosaic law was steadfast. As he says there in verse 2, every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. If that word was serious... Then the word that came by Jesus is even more serious. 
I hope that we can have a revival, a rediscovery in our own lives. And, oh, I pray for it, not just in the church, but in the culture at large. I pray that there would be a revival of the sense of the seriousness of who Jesus is. You know, because for many people, Jesus is seen as a very frivolous character. He's just someone not to take very seriously. Yeah, he said a lot of nice things. You know, he published a lot of good fortune cookie kind of sayings. Um, you know, great kind of thing for that. Maybe good greeting card writer, you know, that kind of thing. But they don't take him seriously. Do you see what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say to us right here and now? He's trying to treat, uh, tell us to treat Jesus as an eminently serious person and a person that you reject or neglect at your own risk. Isn't that exactly what he says in verse 3? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This great message of salvation has brought, been brought to you by Jesus Christ. He brought it. He accomplished it. He delivered it unto you. And if you reject that or if you neglect it, how we will escape. Now, this is what I want you to understand, is that if the word that came by angels was serious, how much more should we take the word that came by the Son of God seriously? If Jesus is greater, then his message is greater. A greater word brought by a greater person having greater promises will bring a greater condemnation if it's rejected or neglected. Now, use those two words advisedly. First of all, wouldn't you agree it's a bad thing to reject this message? And maybe some of you are right at that place here this morning. You're rejecting the message. You have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ. You have not yet come to Jesus in humble prayer and repentance and said, Jesus, will you forgive my sins? Jesus, I come to you not not as a, a saint. I come to you as a sinner and ask that you would wash me of my sins and give me eternal life. You've never come to Jesus that way. Well, today's the day for you to do it and to stop rejecting Jesus. But I want you to notice, that's not what the writer of the Hebrews said. He didn't say reject. What word did he say? Neglect. And that's something that can happen among those people who already are believers. You, you do trust in Jesus. You do have a sincere love for him. I'm not questioning that. But do you neglect this great salvation that he's given you? Do you neglect him and put your focus on a dozen different things, but you don't put your focus on Jesus? Honestly, Jesus is somewhat uninteresting to you. You find the things of daily life, of modern technology, of current entertainment. Those things fascinate you a great deal. But Jesus, yawn. Friends, if that's you, first of all, I just ask you this. Just be honest about it to yourself. And then secondly, say, oh, God, would you please rescue me from being one who might neglect this great salvation? And it is a great salvation. Don't you love that phrase? So great a salvation. It is great. I don't want you to neglect it because it is such a great salvation. We are saved by a great savior. We're saved at a great cost. We're saved from a great penalty. It is a great salvation. It's not just Jesus coming and helping us. It's not as if Jesus comes and he says, "Okay, here you are with all your dreams and all your aspirations and all your plans for your life. And Jesus just comes and says, let me help you like he's a vitamin or, you know, a new brand of soda or something like that. As if Jesus were a product that we're here to help you improve your life. You know what Jesus is here to do? He's here to take control of your life. 
He's here to say, you know, all that thing that you had for your life, I want you to die to that and surrender your life to me, and I'll show you a better life than you could have ever imagined. That's the message of Jesus to you and to me. And so he says, no, I've come to save you from your own life, not to, not to confirm it in you. That is a great salvation. Now, notice this. He says here in verse 3 that it was spoken by the Lord and confirmed with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice something. There's an interesting phrase used there in verse 3. And this is just a little side point. It's one of the reasons why I personally believe that the Apostle Paul did not write the letter to the Hebrews. You ready for my best evidence from the letter to the Hebrews? Here we go. Look at it in verse 3. It says very plainly there, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In other words, the writer of the Hebrews says, I didn't hear Jesus directly myself. I heard about him from somebody else. Now, you know what I think is fascinating about that? The Apostle Paul didn't seem to speak that way, especially if you go to a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul was adamant about the idea that Jesus brought his gospel to Paul directly himself, that Paul didn't receive it from any human preacher, but that he received it from Jesus himself. That phrase in chapter two, verse three, I just don't see the apostle Paul saying that about the way that he heard the gospel. You're free to disagree with that if you please. But again, that's just my perspective on it and why it sort of argues that Paul did not write this letter. But don't miss the point in that one little side point. The point is this, is that God also bore witness to this word. It wasn't just the fact that Jesus is true and all himself, but he bore witness to the word by what? Notice what he says there in verse four, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit that came according to his will. God established this word of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross beyond any reasonable doubt. And therefore, we can put our trust in who Jesus is and what he did for us. Now, starting with verse five, the writer of Hebrews starts developing another point. But before we develop that other point, can we just summarize where we've been in these first four verses? It's basically this. Because we have a message from a greater savior who is supreme over all the angels, we better pay attention to it. And I just simply want to ask you, do you pay attention to Jesus in your life? Look, I I, I sympathize with you if you can't immediately answer yes. Because honestly, you think about the hours of the day that you spend doing everything else and how little of that time you actually spend thinking about Jesus. I understand that. The solution is not for you to smash your television set Well, no, wait a minute. Let me think about that. Maybe that is a solution. All right. Anyway, let's just, well, to watch less television, let's say that the the, the solution isn't to, well, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to join a monastery. I'm going to do all this. No, let me tell you what the solution is. It's to bring Jesus in and be a part of everything you do in daily life. So you go to work. Don't leave Jesus behind. You go to school, Jesus is right there with you. Here's the key. He's with you anyway. It's just whether or not you're living in the vital recognition of that. When we understand Jesus to be supreme as he is, then actually it flows very naturally from that understanding. All right, now, that's the point he was trying to make. Now, starting at verse 5, he's going to just introduce something that we're going to develop much further the next time we're in the book of Hebrews. 
Because really, this idea that he's going to develop starting at verse 5 has to do with the humanity of Jesus. And we're going to talk about it more when he develops it further on down the line. But at least we want to get an introduction to it starting now at verse 5. And we're going to read through the middle of verse 8 where he says this. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying... What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now notice this. He's talking again about angels, but here the contrast isn't directly between angels and the Son of God. Now the contrast is between angels and humanity. Can I read that phrase to you again? Verse 5. He has not put the world to come in subjection to angels, but rather, as he explains, according to Psalm 8, which we'll take a look at in just a moment, according to that quotation from Psalm 8, He has put the world and the destiny of the world not in subjection to angels, but to humanity. Have you ever thought about that? That here angels are these exalted beings that if an angel were to appear right now on the platform next to me, you would not be listening to me at all. I I can fairly confidently say that everybody's attention would be focused on the angel. But you know what? I'll tell you something right now. I've got something up and over that angel that might appear on the platform. God never put angelic beings in domination over the world, but he put human beings in a position of authority over this earth. I mean, he gave that commission to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He didn't give that commission to angelic beings. And so it's even, yes, Mr. Angel, even though you're shining and radiant and glorious and all of that, yet, for whatever reason, God never gave the administration, the management of this earth over to you He gave it to us as humanity, which we have a sacred charge before God to use and to manage and to wisely bless the earth with the resources God has put upon it. That's what God has given us to do. Now, in light of that, you can very rationally ask in verse six how he says, he says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you've take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. How does that work? Here we are lower than the angels. Yet nevertheless, we are crowned with glory and honor. Something that God never says is connected with the angels. I tell you that you read a lot about angels in the Bible. You never read a thing about an angel wearing a crown in the Bible. Crowns are something not exclusively, but in part reserved for God's people. Yet here we are as human beings, this strange thing. We're lower than the angels, yet we have a destiny to be greater than the angels. And here's the point. Jesus Christ came and shared in our humanity. And when he shared in our humanity, he became, at least in that sense, a little lower than the angels. How weird is that? In Hebrews chapter 1, he so powerfully, so eloquently described for us how Jesus was greater than the angels. Now he's telling us that when Jesus added humanity to his deity, he came, and at least by all outward appearance, Jesus was lower than the angels. Isn't that fascinating? 
And Jesus did that because he came and he shared our humanity. Now, that idea of Jesus sharing our humanity is so rich and so important that the writer of the Hebrews is going to talk a lot about it. We'll talk about it in coming weeks, so I'm not going to dwell too much upon it now. Other than just to explain to you, please understand, Jesus did not give up his deity when he embraced humanity. Actually, he didn't give up his deity. He just added humanity to his deity. So that when Jesus walked this earth and even now in his ascended glory, he is fully God and fully man. You say, how does that work? I don't know. When you figure it out, please explain it to me. I just know what the Bible teaches. That there's Jesus, fully God and fully man. But here's the point. In his humanity, he's made a little lower than the angels. And here, as part of humanity, Jesus, as our elder brother, it says there at the end, or excuse me, the beginning of verse 8, it says that he left nothing that is not put under him. God has said, I put all things in subjection to humanity. Adam, I give you and your descendants the right to rule and have authority over this earth. It's all yours. Let me tell you, as humanity looks out upon the earth, do we feel like it's all ours? Do, do we feel like things are in control? How about this? You, you, you see a tragic plane crash like happened yesterday in San Francisco. Does that give you the feeling that things are in control? You have mighty tornadoes that sweep through a state like Oklahoma. Does that feel like things are in control? You have uh, economic booms and then economic crashes. Does that make anybody feel like things are in control? You have uh, the diminishing capacities of age. You have cancer that afflicts so many people. You have this and that and the other thing. And it's easy to look back and say, is any of this under control? And that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews asks. I love this passage. Look, we're going to start in the, excuse me, in the middle of verse 8. Look at what he says. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Look at that. I think that's a startling phrase there at the end of verse 8. God, you said that man would have dominion over the earth. Yeah, that's great. When is that going to happen? Sometimes it feels like we don't have dominion over anything. We don't have dominion over sickness. We don't have dominion over the culture. We don't have dominion over this. It seems like the world is spinning out of control and it's in nothing but chaos. Where is this answer that you said, Lord, I don't see any of that dominion that you spoke about. Look at it, starting again, the middle of verse 8. But we now do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Friends, to me, this is such a powerful idea. We look around and we do not yet see all things in subjection. Is this not agreed? We look at a world, and even a siren off in the distance reminds us, It's a world full of chaos, isn't it? It's a world full of trouble. We see that. But you know what's an even greater truth that we see? But we see Jesus. Lord, I look around my life and I don't have all the answers. I see my trials. I see my difficulties. I see things that frustrate me. I see things that make me angry. Lord, I see things that I feel powerless in the face of. I see things that pain me on and on and on. There's so much in it. 
And then you know what the Lord says to me? He says, but David, do you see Jesus? Just look to Jesus. Look to my son. Oh, and we, we don't look at Jesus and shut out the world. We don't look at Jesus and escape to some kind of weird monastery where we have nothing to do with the things of the world. No, no, that's not it at all. No, we see Jesus and we see that he is actually exalted above the things of this earth. And seeing him in his proper place puts everything else in perspective. That promise of everything being under the dominion of humanity that is never going to be fulfilled in me or in you, but it will be fulfilled in Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And as we share in him, we will share in that dominion that he has. There's so many things that we don't understand, but we do see Jesus. You know, many people are tortured by the perplexing questions of life. They look at this and say, why, why, why? And why sometimes it's the most troublesome question that anybody can face. But I'll tell you this, that I've learned from my own life experience, as limited as it's been, I've learned that the real satisfaction in this world, it isn't found in finding the answer to the question, why? Lord, why this tragedy? Why this? Because sometimes you can figure it out. Sometimes you can't. And sometimes you think you got it figured out. and You're wrong. Let me tell you this. The real satisfaction isn't in discovering the answer to the question why. The real satisfaction is fine, found in discovering the answer to the question who. Who is Lord? Who is Savior? Who is Supreme And to that we say, we see Jesus. Friends, if there's anything that I can do as a pastor or a preacher, again and again and again, I want you to point you to Jesus. I want you to look upon Jesus. And I can imagine some people hearing these words. Well, David, I wish I could see Jesus. I wish I could see Jesus just like I see this piano up on the platform. There's a piano. I can see the piano. Where's Jesus? I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus just like he walked on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. I want to see Jesus with my natural eye. Then things would be answered for me. No, you're mistaken at that. I understand why you're mistaken, but I'm here to tell you you're mistaken. Because many of the people who saw Jesus with their natural eye, many of those people who saw him, they didn't believe him. They could see them with the eye of nature, but they couldn't see him with the eye of faith. And so often in the scriptures, seeing is used as a metaphor or as a picture of believing. In other words, sight is sort of an analogy of faith. Just as sight is a sense by which we comprehend the natural world, so faith is a sense by which we comprehend the spiritual world. And so I tell you, Put your faith in Jesus Christ. See him by the eye of faith. Stop trying to see him by the eye of nature and look to him by the eye of faith. Believe in him. Put your trust in him. Lately, it seems like I've talked to people who just so overthink this faith thing. You know, the, well, how can I believe? I don't know how to believe. What do I believe? This and that. Just believe. Just put your trust in him. Stop trying to have faith and just believe. If it helps you to say it, say it. Say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in who you are. I believe in what you did for me on the cross. I put my trust in you. Say that. I don't think that answers everything, but that's a great place to start. Put your faith in him. 
And this is the great thing. We need to see Jesus. We need to see him as the one who loves sinners and who died for them. We need to see him as our savior. We need to see him as our master. We need to see him as our friend. We need to see him as our captain and our forerunner. We need to see him as our healer. We need to see him at our work. We need to see him at the home. We need to see him outside the walls of this very building. We need to see him all the time. Now, in verse 9, he brings up this idea that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We're going to talk about that. This is more just sort of a teaser for our next time in the book of Hebrews because he's going to develop that idea of Jesus being lower than the angels and the humility of Jesus. But please, can you just grab onto that? How much Jesus humbled himself. There he is, God eternal, the second member of the Trinity. And not only does he add humanity to his deity, but he comes to as a humble man, lowering some and then suffering the pains of death. Why? Because he knew that you and I will suffer the pains of death as well. And he wanted to identify with us and not only to identify with us, but then to conquer death on our behalf. Because this is what it says. Not only that, notice what it says in verse 9. Not only the suffering of death, but that he was also crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Don't miss that. That not only did he endure the suffering of death, but there on top of it, he was crowned with glory and honor. Oh, we love to talk about Jesus and the work that he did at the cross. We love to think about Jesus dying and bleeding for our sins, taking the punishment we deserved on the cross. And I love to talk about it, but please don't anybody think that that's where the story ends. Because they ripped off that crown of thorns and God gave him a glory crown of a glorious crown of honor and dignity and glory. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, the father and the cross didn't end the story at all. He's crowned. He's crowned with everything. And that's. And that's why we have such confidence in the supremacy of Jesus, even though for a season he was lower than the angels. No, through the great work that he did on the cross on our behalf. Now he's crowned and exalted overall. Can you see that, Jesus? Can you pay attention to him? Can you realize the great risk there is in neglecting so great a salvation? It's a perfect morning for us to talk about this because in a few moments, Trevor is going to come on up and he's going to lead us at the table of the Lord. We're going to receive the bread and the cup. There's two things I want you to know about that. First of all, first of all, when you hold that bread and that cup in your hand, I just want you to think, Lord, I do not want to neglect the salvation that you gave me. This salvation pictured by this bread and this cup, I do not want to neglect it. Secondly, please notice this. It's the last words of verse nine. And we'll conclude with this where he says, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. What does it mean by everyone? Let's try this. It means everyone. Even you. Even you, the one who has not yet yielded your life to him. He tasted death for you. Now, won't you, won't you receive him right here, right now, this morning? You're going to have an opportunity to do that just as we receive communion. 
But now let's just lift up Jesus, exalted in our midst, and pray that we would not neglect so great a salvation. Father, that is our prayer together here this morning. We think of the greatness of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. We're in awe about that, Lord. We think of him exalted above every angelic being, even though for a season he was made lower than the angels. Yet now, Lord, we think of him exalted. And we simply ask, Heavenly Father, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would not neglect this great salvation that you've given to us. Rather, Lord, as we think about it, we think about Jesus. We want to take you with us. We want to recognize your presence with us. Every day at home, at work, at school, in the neighborhood, in the city, Jesus, be with us and demonstrate your presence with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are and what you did for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.